Thank you for joining us for Time in the Chapel. Each week we eagerly try to discover what God has been saying to us since time began and even further back than that. Sometimes it's right on the surface. Sometimes we have to dive a little bit deeper, but either way we do our best, lean not on our own understanding, in all our ways acknowledge Him and expect that He will direct our paths. So grab your Bible, prepare your hearts and minds, hit the pause button long enough to pray for the help of the Holy Spirit, and then join me as we open up the treasures of God's Word. You know, the Bible is really an incredible document for so many reasons. When we read it, if we read it with the focus and the intensity, intensity that it deserves, we see so many things. And for one, it is a window into a world that's almost completely unknown to us today. We get to see cultural nuances that have long since passed away. The story of the alabaster box, our topic for the next two weeks, is a very good example of this. Now this series, this series that we are going to spend the next two weeks on isn't meant to be a social studies seminar, but I do want to spend some time talking about those subtleties, those things that are going on in the background of the story so that we can learn from them. And I believe that we can learn from them. If you're a, a literature major, you'll know that the setting is as important as the tone, as a, the words, as to the rhythm, the structure. Those, the setting is as important to telling a story as anything else. And I believe that that's the case with the Bible as well. And that's why in this particular story, this particular topic, and we've taught on it before, we like to point out some of the cultural nuances that are going on because they can teach us so many things. And then we can learn in the context of the cultural mindset some very important things. There's so much in this story. That's why we take two weeks to share it with you whenever we do come to it. Now, the story of the alabaster box is found in all three of the synoptic gospels, which, as you know, are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, as there often is, there are slight differences within the three versions of the story, but we are talking about the same event. Now, some of you smart Alex may be thinking, John, I thought you knew your Bible. Didn't you miss the fact that this story is also found in the Gospel of John? Well, the truth is there is a similar story in the Gospel of John, but in my opinion, what we find there is not the same story. Some scholars do believe it is, but there are major differences that cannot be easily resolved with the other three. And now before we go on, I'd like to point out that some people really get sort of bent out of shape up about these sorts of things. Critics will point to such disparity as proof 
of the lack of the authenticity of the Gospels, which then in turn sows the seed of doubt for some believers. But let me quickly address this. First, I don't really care to convince the critics of anything. I do sometimes get accused of being an apologist for God, and all that means is some people say I spend a lot of times proving this or that. I don't try to prove anything to anyone. I lay out the facts. But I don't lay out the facts to prove anything to the critics. I don't argue about the things of God. I don't find that very productive. You see, most of the critics that I encounter have some axe to grind, and usually the majority of their criticism is with the man-made institution of religion. They'll complain about pedophile priests or greedy televangelists or scam artist faith healers. Too often, the mistake of mixing the things of God with the man-made in inventions of religion lead people astray and provide fuel to fire criticism. It's been my experience that most of the time when people have become disillusioned with God, they're actually mad at religion and the hypocrites that practice it. Now, trust me, I get that. But my advice is to make sure you know what your argument is before you try to make it. So as I said, most critics don't get really a second thought from me. But I do care about the believers. I do care about the struggling believer, both new and old. Listen, believe me, doubt is a part of the trip. It doesn't matter if you're brand new or you've been around 50 years in a church. You'll struggle. The life of faith isn't easy. We live in a doubting world. Many of those around us don't look at things the way we do. We get judged as fools for believing what they think are fairy tales. Then, of course, there's the devil and his minions, and yes, they are real. And it's in their best interest to keep you doubting, because they know the value of faith. Every person that becomes a believer reduces the numbers available for their ranks. And when you live your life as a believer who has faith, you become attractive to people. It's just the way it works. You see, the world is attracted to confidence because there's so little of it. And confidence and faith are the same thing. People are going to want to know why you're confident. And when you tell them, well, it's because my faith isn't the things above, they're going to want to know more. And let's, let, let's face it, the devil is not going to want you to com- complete that story. He doesn't want you to convince anyone that the true path of joy, not just happiness, joy, is heavenward. 
So what then are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to think when we come across doubt-inducing situations? What are we supposed to do when, for example, we see variations in God's Word from one gospel to the next? Then I think that that's a legitimate concern. I think it's a legitimate question. Listen, God isn't afraid of your doubt. My old pastor, Dr. Gene Scott, used to say, God's not going to fall off his throne because you have a question for him. There's no sin in doubt. There's only sin in succumbing to doubt. So, what's the plan of action to combat that sort of thing? What do we do to fight uncertainty? Well, first and foremost, you must have faith. You must believe in the unseen. You must believe that God is true to his word. You must believe that he is in charge. One of the most valuable pieces of wisdom ever written down is found in the book of Proverbs. Chapter 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not on thine own understanding. Now, when I look at this verse, I see something very important. God does not want you to ignore your judgment or your understanding. Just don't lean on it. After all, if you're his, he's actually shaping your judgment, your understanding with the influence of the Holy Spirit. That's how he gets things done. Let me explain this. Too many Christians don't act until they have, quote, a word from the Lord. They want a tangible way through. Now, this is delicate ground that we're treading on, but it's important. Much of the work of God goes undone because the way seems unclear. Too many men and women are waiting for specific instructions on what to do next. Listen, let's get something clear. This life we have with God is about faith, not specifics. One time, Jesus told Peter, launch out into the deep. Now, the Lord was telling Peter where to go to find a harvest of fish. That was the context of the story. And the word that gets translated deep there in Luke 5, 4 is bathos. That very same word bathos carries with it the figurative meaning of unknownness to make up a word. Bathos can be used allegorically to mean something mysterious. Launch out into the deep. So here in Luke, both meanings are present to make a very clever point. You know, people find the Bible boring. I do not. I find it 
a very clever book, a book that can tell you things that hit home immediately. I understand what Jesus was saying when he said to Peter, launch out into the mysterious. Go forward to where perhaps your instincts will tell you not to go. If Jesus is with you like he was with Peter, you can trust that. You see, Jesus was instructing Peter to head to the deeper parts of the Sea of Galilee, but he was also teaching the chief of the apostles to take a risk, to go against his training, to go against his experience. Jesus, at that moment, wanted Peter to go against, now get this, to go against his own understanding to find what he was looking for. You see, the deeper the water, the less of the hole you can perceive from the surface. Do you follow me? You can only see so much of what's down there from the boat. The deeper the water, the less you know about it. The deeper the water, the deeper the mystery. And Peter knew that. My friends, when God says go, trust him and go. But I don't know what to do. He isn't telling me much. Now again, I have to say this is very difficult ground that we're traversing. Because, and this is really important for you to understand, everyone's relationship with God is unique. It has its own unique quality. God's going to talk to you in the way that you understand. I've always lamented the fact that God never tells me anything. He impresses upon me. And there's a big difference. There are people that I know and read about that say, last night God said for me to do this. And they mean it in the literal sense. God told me to go to Africa. I've never heard that from God. And I've said all the time that if God were to say to me something in an audible voice, it would freak me out. And I wouldn't listen to him because he knows that. God is going to deal with you in his way with you. The way that he has cultivated the relationship with you, that's how he's going to communicate with you. When Jesus told Peter to launch out into the deep, that was at the beginning of Peter's trip with Jesus. That was the beginning of Peter's ministry. And don't you think for a second that Peter was unaware of the double meaning. 
There was a way that Jesus told Peter to launch out into the deep that meant something more to Peter than let's go fishing for fish. Because Jesus has a way of building a relationship with you. In fact, some say that when Jesus went around and called his apostles, Peter included, and the others, and they dropped what they were doing and followed him, the way the story is told in the Gospels, though not literally told us this way, we are to understand that those men, this was not the first time they had met Jesus. Remember, we're only told what we're meant to know. More went on in Jesus's life than we're told in the Gospels. Some assume that Jesus had already built up a reputation and a relationship with those men that he called to be his apostles, and that would explain the immediate reactions that he received from all of them when calling them. He had built a relationship with those men. He's building a relationship with you that when he talks to you, you're going to know it. When Jesus told Peter to launch out into the deep, it didn't make sense to Peter. If God was only, if Jesus was only talking about fishing, I don't believe that Peter would have done it. This was a hard scrabble fisherman. Besides, he'd already, he told Jesus, we already tried it there. We had already been there. He hesitated, but for some reason, Peter said to Jesus, despite the unknownness, despite the bathos, nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. The relationship had been built such that Peter decided not to lean on his own understanding and he leaned on the understanding of Jesus. He wants to build a relationship with you so that when you read Proverbs 3, 5 that tells you not to lean on your understanding, you won't be so terrified by that command. God's not going to ask you to do something that's beyond your ability or his ability to get done. It doesn't make sense to me. I don't have enough info, but since you said it, I'll do it. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. And I will say to you again, I don't know how Jesus is going to get that done for you. But he's going to. Because he paid a mighty price to get close to you. He's not going to waste it. 
you don't waste it either. Elsewhere, he said, my sheep know my voice. We're in this with him. That's why we're his sheep. They say that in ancient Palestine, there would be five or six shepherds all around this extra large flock, and each shepherd was responsible for a certain number of sheep. And when that shepherd called his certain number of sheep, they knew it was him, and they followed him. You've been called out. That's what the word church means, ecclesia, out, called ones. Ecclesia is the Greek word that gets translated into the English word church. My sheep know my voice. I'm saying all of this to reduce the tension in your mind that says, I don't want to make a mistake. I love Jesus. I want to do for him what he wants me to do, but I don't want to make a mistake. Well, like we've been trying to say for the previous few weeks, reduce your reliance on yourself and increase your reliance on him. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not in unto thine own understanding. Trust in the Lord. Turn your, un, your misunderstanding to him so he can turn it into understanding. God is warning us not to lean on our view of things. The original Hebrew word means exa exactly what it sounds like in the English. It's a picture of support. In the Old Testament, the word's used both in the figurative and the literal sense. That original word is used to describe the physical support that you receive when you lean on something like a tree or a pillar. When you're weary, when you've had enough, when you just don't have the strength to carry your entire weight, you lean on something. When you don't trust your own understanding, which you shouldn't, Trust in the Lord. Lean on Him. God is making sure, listen to me, that no matter what the topic, no matter what the subject, He doesn't want you to rely solely on your view of things to support your decision-making. Jesus did not expect Peter to rely on his own understanding of what launching out into the deep meant, because if he had, they would have never gone out there. If they had leaned on the understanding of Peter, if Jesus would have allowed the two of them to go on the understanding of Peter's view of things, they would have never launched out into the deep. And then a miracle could not happen. If Jesus 
allows you to lean on your view of things than what's possible will never come to fruition. Your miracle won't happen if you just launch forward on your own understanding in the direction you think you should go. All of this is going a long way to tell you that when during your study in Scripture, during your prayer time, during your decision-making time, and you find something that doesn't make sense, don't let it rattle you because God doesn't want you to go on your understanding. The key is not to lean on your own understanding of things. Pray. Ask the Spirit for guidance. Investigate. Look it up. Listen, we have this great fortune of having more than 20 years of 20 centuries of scholarship to turn to when trying to break down what God is saying to us in Scripture. I'm convinced, I'm convinced that down through the ages, God has blessed us with men and women that have the ability to rightly divide God's Word, to do it in such a way that the church and you and I as individuals can move closer and closer to Him. Now, of course, not everything that's written down in commentaries and word studies and past sermons is accurate, but that's where faith comes in. That's where prayer comes in. That's where allowing the Holy Spirit to work through you comes in. Listen, there's really, there's one divinely inspired Bible. That's it. Anything else that's written down should initially be viewed with skepticism. Everything you hear, including, including what comes from me, should always be viewed initially with skepticism. As much as you shouldn't lean on your understanding, don't lean on mine either. God said trust in Him and lean on, on your own understanding, but that infers don't lean on John Tomasi's understanding either. Focused prayerful study of God's Word will clear up most questions. Emphasis on the prayer part. You come to something that you don't understand in Scripture, ask God to help you. You know, there are times in our home where Catherine and I have to make a rule. One of the things parents of teenagers have to deal with today probably more than ever, is the access that kids have to one another. Unchaperoned access. There's texting and Instagram and Facebook and all sorts of other things, and it can really get out of hand. Well, not too long ago, I had to tell Samantha to limit the amount of time that she spends on her phone. It just seemed like it was getting a little excessive. Well, as it 
turns out. She didn't understand some of the subtleties of the new rule, and she came to me later to ask for more details. Now, what kind of father would I be if I didn't clear up her questions? Could I hold her responsible for her not understanding certain parts of that if I had the chance to clear those up? Of course not. That would be unjust. Luke 11, 11, if a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? The Holy Spirit's purpose in your life is to teach you the things of God, and that's it. And that's what we're told by Jesus. Therefore, employ the Holy Spirit. When doubt arrives, have faith that the Holy Spirit will guide you. When you're studying God's Word, pray. Pray before you begin. Why do you think we pray before every program here? We want the Holy Spirit to be activated. Does that mean He doesn't activate if we don't ask Him? No, I don't think so. I think He activates otherwise. But when we take the trouble and the time and the effort, then it shows that we're connected and we understand the proper path to understanding and the Holy Spirit will, will then find less of an obstacle to injecting God's viewpoint of things through your own. When we take the time to say, I don't think I'm going to understand this Holy Spirit, please help me. It's humility. It's humility before God. Now, does that mean that doubt will all disappear? No, probably not. But the effects of doubt will not prevail. Jesus had to withhold some things from his disciples. He told them that. I have much more to tell you, but you can't handle it now. There are going to be some things, there will be some answers that cannot, will not be available ever for God's purposes. But the effects that that doubt, that lack of information on you will be lessened when you trust that God will tell you what he needs to tell you and what you need to know. The fear subsides when you know that the information that I don't have will, won't hurt me because you're in charge. Trust God's Word. Trust God's Spirit. Don't lean on your own understanding. When you're reading the story of the alabaster box and you see that, well, Matthew said this and Luke said that and Mark said this, don't let that bother you. God had a purpose when he inspired it that way. 
Luke 7, 37, And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself. Now this is interesting. Because this is telling us that this Pharisee didn't express his thoughts verbally. He was simply thinking it. He didn't say any of this. He thought within himself. He spake within himself. Only the Holy Spirit could have written this. I love the Bible. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. Verse 40, And Jesus answering said unto him, Now get this. This man didn't say a word. He just thought it. But verse 40 says that Jesus answered him. I chuckle. I find this comical. Can you imagine the shock that Simon the Pharisee must have felt when his very thoughts were answered? And in the very thoughts that he was answering were disrespecting the man that answered his thoughts. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, meaning, and Simon saith, Master, say on. Verse 41, this is Jesus speaking. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Remember that Jesus is answering the thoughts of Simon the Pharisee. Simon was witnessing the sinning woman crying and ministering unto Jesus and all Simon could see was that this sinning woman was doing something she shouldn't do and Jesus was not preventing it. And he was doing this just to discredit Jesus. So Jesus is answering him with a story. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thy house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I have come in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore, I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. 
And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. And they sat at meat, and they that sat at meat with him began to say with them themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said to the woman, Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. Now, as I've said, we've taught on this subject before, and there are many things for us to learn. And today I'm going to zero in on one aspect of that story. Now, commentators, pastors, and preachers down through the centuries have automatically assumed that when Luke introduces this woman as a sinner, and behold, a woman in the, sinner, in the city which was a sinner, and behold, a woman in the city which was a sinner when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment. The commentators, pastors, and preachers down through the centuries have told us that this woman was a prostitute. Well, it doesn't say that here. Now, it very well may be that she was a prostitute. I'm not arguing against that conclusion. However, I am arguing that we should not jump to conclusions. In fact, Adam Clark, the highly respected biblical scholar from the 18th century, lays out a very good argument that the original Greek word hamartolos, which gets translated into sinner in the English, that hamartolos can just as easily be translated simply as heathen or Gentile. He argues that this woman could be merely a well-known non-Jew in that town who was converted by Jesus. I'm not here to argue that point. In fact, I actually believe she was a prostitute, but I have a reason for bringing all of this up. Regardless of how we sin, or even how much we sin, or how much the world looks down on our sin, sin is sin. There is no specificity in the gospel as to whether or not this woman was a prostitute. There's no specifics there, and that's not an accident. The most minor infraction, according to Jesus, brings condemnation. Doesn't matter if she was a great prostitute, a madam, or just someone that uses the F word too much. It doesn't matter. She was a sinner. That's why we all need grace. There's a danger in trying to say that person is a greater sinner than me because Jesus will never tell you that. One of the most foolish things that I remember from my youth was the church's audacity to quantify and categorize sin. 
to those growing up Catholic like I did, you know that there was mortal sin and venial sin. The church decided that there were certain sins that carried greater weight. And you knew that because when you went to confession, you had more prayers to pray than the next guy. And you could always point to your buddy who's sitting at the altar a little longer than the rest of us that he was really a bad boy that week. The worst sins were labeled mortal and the lesser sins venial, meaning minor or excusable, not at all in the Bible. Don't fall into the trap that leads you to believe that somehow your sin has any less effect on your relationship with God than someone else's. Jesus constantly taught this lesson. Now, I know this is why we never finish, but let's quickly read an important passage. Again, this is from the Gospel of Luke. Listen to this. Chapter 18, verse 9 of Luke. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus within himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For every one that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exhausted. God sees the heart, not the deeds. We see the deeds, and we judge the heart. Jesus was constantly fighting self-righteousness because he came to die for all. Left to us, we'd have one line for righteousness and another line for whatever. We'd say, Jesus, go save those guys in that line. The rest of you, you're out of luck. We must fight self-righteousness in ourselves and in others. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.22 and 3.23. Coming short is coming short. The woman that showed up at Simon the Pharisee's house was in no greater need of grace than you are. Don't read into the story what's not there, because this story is a story of you. You should be no less motivated to appear before the Lord with the same torrent of tears of gratitude than this sinning woman. You got that? 
Now I want to switch to one of the other Gospels so we can get an even more focused view of what's going on. Mark 14, 3, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious, and she broke the box and poured it on his head. You see, the Gospel of Luke mentions the alabaster box and the ointment, but Mark is giving us an even sharper idea of what just happened. You see, this wasn't just some old baby oil in a plastic bottle. This was the good stuff. The King James Version of the Gospel of Mark says it's very precious, but that does not do justice to the original meaning. The word that was used originally is paloutales, which more accurately, listen to me, is translated costly or very expensive. Another clear example of why we need to dig deeper into Scripture, because too much of the full story is lost if we don't. This wasn't just very precious. This was costly. This was very expensive. This hurt. This woman was expressing her love and gratitude to her Lord, and she was doing something, doing it with something of value. She brought value to this expression. But why? Why did she do that? Why very precious? Why costly? Why did it hurt? Because that's what truly grateful people do. That's what people who love each other do. When my mother was alive, you couldn't tell her, happy birthday over Facebook. At 50 years old, I was risking a slap in the back of the head if I did that. I had to take the time to pick up the phone and call my mother and say happy birthday because to her, that's an expression of love based on an action that cost me something. We express each other, we express love for each other with things of value. Now, is that the only way we express love and gratitude? Of course not. But it's important, and we don't ignore it, and we don't make excuses for not doing that. One of the clearest messages on the importance of giving comes from this simple but elegant story. In fact, this story actually gives us the entire gamut of the attitudes toward giving. First, of course, it shows the attitude of the grateful. We'll find out next week 
that some of the apostles felt like this was a foolish thing to do. That that sort of thing isn't meant to be an expression. Jesus corrected them. We'll talk about it next week. Let's, let's focus on this expression of giving costly as a proper expression of gratitude. This woman, we are told, spared no expense in expressing how she felt toward her Savior because she couldn't help it. Now, we don't know any of the details of her salvation, nor should we. We don't know what sort of sinful life she led. We've covered that. But it's obvious that she was grateful. What she gave was very precious, very expensive. What she gave was valuable to her, and that's why she gave it. She was trying to express how she felt. She was trying to illustrate how thankful she was for whatever Jesus had done for her. In fact, just the giving of the valuable item doesn't appear to be enough for this woman. She didn't feel it went far enough to express how she felt. You see, she didn't just give Jesus these items. She ministered to him with them. It was more than a gift. It was a dedication. It was an offering. It was the manner, the attitude of the giving that separated her from all the rest. And it actually got her story memorialized forever. In fact, her depth of gratitude was so great, her love for Jesus drove her so strongly that she did something shocking, actually. Again, we get a glimpse into the cultural mores of the times. She wanted to make this is love, my friends. She wanted to make a personal connection. She wanted to make this a tangible experience for the one she loved. And in doing so, she lost herself. She, she didn't even think clearly. She had one goal in mind, and that's to say to the one she loved, I love you. She broke a very serious cultural rule. The Bible tells us she let her hair down. Now, that doesn't mean anything to us unless we look closer. She let her hair down at a time that women didn't do that. And not only did she let her hair down, she used it in a very tangible way. She wiped the feet of Jesus very, very shocking. No decent woman at that time would have ever let their hair down in a public setting, no matter who they were. They were risking 
their safety, as a matter of fact, in doing things like that. But she didn't care. She didn't think about that. It wasn't important. She wanted to show him her love and her thankfulness, and she did so without regard to personal cost. Listen, she'd already given a tremendous material offering, but then she sealed it with a tremendous personal offering. I know this is only making those of you, those of you that have that kind of relationship with Jesus. The rest of you are probably just shaking your head. I don't really understand what's going on here. But I know some of you do. Real giving comes from deep down. When you and I recognize, and I mean really and fully recognize what God has done for us, we'll become givers in ways we never thought we would. And I'm not just talking about plunking a coin or two in the basket as it goes by. True, Grateful giving is an attitude. It's a recognition. It's a mindset. It's a need, frankly. As I often do, I know I'm failing to properly articulate this. So let's turn back to God's Word to get a better understanding of what God truly does in the hearts of His chosen ones if we let Him. 2 Corinthians 8.1 Moreover, brethren, we do to wit. That's just an old English way to say we want to tell you something. Moreover, brethren, we want to tell you something of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. How that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Paul's telling a story of a group of people who were out of control. They were out of control. Those Macedonians got it. I don't have to beat you over the head to give. Paul doesn't have to beat you over the head to give. This letter was written to the Corinthians and he wasn't beating them over the head. He was reminding them of the power of the grace of God. He was reminding them of what the grace of God can do to people like the churches of Macedonians. They understood, the Macedonians did. The grace of God, because 
That's what Paul said precipitated this attitude. Paul said in verse 1, of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Paul was saying this was the grace of God that created this attitude. The grace of God opened the eyes of the churches of Macedonia to their place in the kingdom, and they were desperate to be a part of it. Verse 4 says, praying us with much entreaty. Again, the Old English makes this difficult to understand. The International Standard Version says, they begged us earnestly. The Amplified says, begging us most insistently. They were out of control. Listen, the gratitude and love of the Macedonians overwhelmed them just as it did the woman in our story. You see, according to the record we have, the Macedonian Christians viewed giving as a need. They needed it above all their other needs. They needed to take up an offering. They begged to be allowed to do it, like people beg bread. Aren't you being a little poetic with this, John? Paul made certain that the Corinthians and us knew that the Macedonians weren't just some collection of wealthy church members with sizable disposable income. They didn't give out of their plenty. Because verse 2 says they were experiencing a great trial of affliction and deep poverty. They had needs... And then they had the need to give. They were driven by their need to give. They begged. They were out of control. Paul, you've got to take this from us. That's why God instituted a limit on giving, by the way. You see, a truly enlightened child of God will want to give everything away. Just like those Macedonians, they'll want to give everything away. A fully in Christian will feel unrestrained when that collection plate goes by. God knows that. And he doesn't want you to give it all away. That's why he gave you the tithe. The tithe is 10%. That's your goal. Don't give it all away. Give 10%. That's enough. You're going to want to give it all if you really understand this. If the Holy Spirit is really allowed into your heart, you're going to want to give it all away. Trust me, I know what I'm talking about. Some people think that the tithe was a 
rule to point to. God said, give 10%. And if you don't, you're going to hell. That isn't the case. At least part of the reason that God put the tithe there is to restrict your giving. Now, I'm not saying it's sinful to go over 10%. I'm not saying that at all. You have to take care of your family. Listen to me. Don't move your car into the family sedan so that you can continue to give to the church of Christ. Don't do that. God doesn't want you to do that. But you are to take an assessment of your, quote, needs. Shoot for that 10%. Put that in your budget. You can't tell Harris Fuel, listen, I don't have enough money this month for my fuel oil, but give it to me anyways. You budget. You figure out how much that's going to cost you to heat your home, and you budget. Why is giving any different? If you understood your salvation, I wouldn't need to say this to you. I'm not, I'm not hammering anybody, by the way. I'm just reminding you. I'm telling you to, re, to lift the restriction on the Holy Spirit's desire to make you a giver. God wants you to be a giver. True, God-inspired givers behave like those Macedonians. Now, you may be thinking, well, I don't, I'm not like that yet, John. Is there something wrong with me? Well, yes. For now. But if you truly desire to please God, He's going to give you the right discernment which will turn your attitude around. I promise. He promises. Even if you have only a sliver of understanding of what God has provided for you on Calvary, then use that sliver to get to know the rest better. And when you do that with honesty, focus, and mostly love, you'll likely begin wishing that there was no such thing as the tithe. You're going to want God to raise that ceiling, just like those Macedonians. Giving is a privilege. That's what I have in my notes, but I'm going to change that. Giving is a need. It's a beautiful, as much as I want to express my love and praise and song and worship, I want to give too. It's a part of that. It's a part of the experience. And God's going to get you there. I know he will. Now there's... Of course, so much to this story, as I've told you so many times already, and we will continue with this topic next week. I'm going to let this sink in. I want you to focus on this part for the time being. Let it sink in. I'm not asking you to get to this ministry, by the way. That isn't what this is. I'm asking you to be a giver. 
give to God's work. If you consider this God's work, then by all means. But you have to make the decision between God and yourself what you're going to do next. Next week, we're going to talk about the other topics, the forgiveness, the love, the faith. Those are just as important in your spiritual walk as giving. But make no, make no mistake, Jesus loves givers. Jesus praises giving. When we are truly aware of what we've received through grace, the only proper response should be irresistible gratitude that finds expression, among other things, in dedicated, enthusiastic giving. You've been listening to Time in the Chapel, a weekly program dedicated to bringing you in-depth biblical study. Join us again next time as we search scripture to learn more about God in your life and you in his plan. Time in the Chapel is a service of Chapel Ministries. Chapel Ministries is a non-denominational ministry with a mission to feed hungry souls. Please consider supporting this program financially. For more information, please visit our website at www.timeinthechapel.com or email us at info at timeinthechapel.com. Be sure to look for us on Facebook by searching for Chapel Ministries. Click follow to get all of the latest information.